We want to welcome those of you that are joining us uh, live now on Facebook or YouTube or other streaming platforms. Uh, glad that you can join us today. In a few minutes, we're going to begin our uh, time or pick up where we left off, talking about the genres of the Bible as we're thinking about how we uh, read and study and hear the Scripture. And today will be our last day talking about genres. Uh, next week, we're going to get into some more practical aspects of actually studying passages, trying to determine um, original meaning and uh, application, gospel connections. We're going to take, I think we've got three weeks of this left, and so we're going to take some of those ideas and also connect those to how we hear sermons and how we think about the meaning of the text and gospel and, and life applications through, through that. So that's how we're going to close out because we're doing this up through um, the week before Thanksgiving, and then we'll take a break before coming back together in the new year. So, um, but I had already warned the people in the room at least those that were here um, early, that for the first couple of minutes, instead of talking about Bible intake, which I promise I'm getting to our subject, I'm not going to belabor this point, uh, but for maybe just a few minutes, I wanted to take a moment and just talk about the election next week um, and kind of how I'm processing that and how I'm thinking about it. Now, let me tell you two things I'm not going to do because I've made this commitment long ago in my own heart as a pastor. And I am not breaking it, no matter how hard some of you want me to. I do not endorse candidates, either publicly or privately. Um, so I don't do it from the pulpit. I'm not doing it on a Wednesday night. And I'm not doing it if you come to me in the lobby and ask. All right? I remember a day kind of growing up, you didn't tell people who you voted for. I kind of wish we would go back to that a little bit. Um, I know a little bit too much about some of your political positions because you seem to think you need to share them every 38 seconds online. Um, and that's your right to do so, free speech, right? You shared away, I'm not going to do that. Um, but, and the second is, I don't, I don't even endorse political parties, right? I just, I don't get into, I, I'm not gonna tell you to vote for it, all right? And I'm not even gonna tell you who I'm voting for it. But I do wanna talk about how I'm processing this a little bit, because this has been a really unique election, even more so in some ways than the one four years ago. And the one four years ago felt like just this really, uh, out-of-body experience for us as America. And four years ago, after that was over, I prayed, Lord, would you give us better options in 2020? And I kind of feel like, for whatever reason, the Lord did not answer that prayer. Um, and so we're, we have what we have in front of us. I, I do say, I, I don't endorse candidates, but I have no trouble criticizing them. And I, I feel like there's a lot of criticism to go around, um, both uh, personally and um, policy-wise with the two primary candidates. And I know we've got some big third-party people in the room. Shout out. And uh, I, I'm only going to talk. I got time to talk about two. So that, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, so um, I, I have had, I've had multiple people send me articles in the last um, uh, week or so. Email, text message, tag me on Facebook, these different things. Three primary articles that I've been sent multiple times. One, um, all three are by guys that I greatly respect, um, read, agreed with parts of what they wrote, disagreed with other parts they wrote. Um, John Piper kind of got this thing started a week ago when he wrote um, a, a blog post on Desiring God called Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin, um, where Piper uh, beautifully, he, everything he writes is beautiful. Like he, he could just be describing how to take out the garbage and I'd be like, man, that's pretty. Um, cause he has a way with words and, and he did, and he wrote this and he has a very good way with words, ultimately leading to the position of not voting for either major party candidate was the position that he took. 
Um, and uh, another guy I have great respect for, Wayne Grudem, who I teach from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book on Wednesday nights normally when I'm teaching my Bible doctrine class. Um, he wrote a response to, to, um, to Pastor John's blog, uh, which was published yesterday, I think, by Christianity Today. So if you want to see John's, it's at, at desiringgod.org. If you want to see the response, it's at christianitytoday.com. Um, and they're very good friends and, and dialogue. I think it is a great example of how Christians can dialogue over very important things that they disagree on and still do it in Christ-like love because we struggle so much with that. People are just being so ugly to one another, even within the church, as far as I know, not within this church, which I greatly appreciate. Um, and then the third guy uh, wrote a few days ago, and he's talked about this, but he kind of put it all down on, on paper, which was uh, Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, uh, wrote uh, at his website, albertmoeller.com, um, about his thoughts about the election. And he would um, he approached it from a little bit of a different way than Wayne Grudem did. But both of those guys are saying um, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. And, um, and they have their reasons for that and, and eloquently spelled out. And John Piper is not. Um, and, and again, eloquently spelled out. And as I read those things, I thought, I mean, these, these are really well-reasoned. And again, and there are things in, both, in all three articles I disagree with, but there are things that are they're really well-reasoned, um, very clear, biblical, like let's go to the text and think about what the Bible says, doing some of the things that we've talked about doing in here, uh, not making the text say something that it didn't say. But as I, as I read these kind of in my life, theological giants write about these, and some of them take positions that, that I may agree with or, or disagree with. And I think in, in all three articles, there are things that I agree with and disagree with um, in, in some of their assumptions and conclusions. Uh, it made me kind of survey the landscape of how I'm watching Christians, uh, some in our church, some in other churches, some prominent pastors in other places, some just loud people on the internet. Um, respond to other Christians. And so here, here's my thought. If, if spiritual giants like John Piper and Al Mohler and Wayne Grudem struggle, and you can see the struggle in those guys, if they struggle through the biblical text to really think in a Christ-like way about how I should vote, we should do that too. And so that's really what I want to say tonight is if if... If you approach this with very little thought and just think, wow, everybody ought to agree with me, and anybody that disagrees with me, I've watched a guy today say, anybody that disagrees with me on this and votes opposite as me is obviously not a Christian. I mean, that is a position that people are taking. I think that's really dangerous within the church. Um, and, and so I, I would just want to encourage us as people of the word that love the Lord uh, make that first and foremost and, and recognize that other Christians may come to differing opinions than you. They may decide not to vote. They may decide to vote for a third party. They may decide to vote for a different major political party um, than, than you for varying reasons. And, and I think as a church, we are uni unified by the gospel. That's one of our core, um, uh, core values is that the gospel unifies us, uh, not politics and not political parties. Uh, we don't walk around with R's on our chest or D's on our chest uh, or, you know, independent or whatever. Like, that's not who we are. And so um, do, do open yourself. I would actually encourage you to read those and watch these, these people who, who um, 
think really well about these things. Read them and, and don't just dismiss it out of hand because I've already told you that John Piper's going to vote one way and Al Mohler's going to vote another and you may disagree with him. Don't just dismiss it out of hand, but read it and watch the struggle. I think it'll actually help you in biblical interpretation. It'll help you see how we apply things from scripture, um, but it'll also, call, it'll also get us out of our tribes a little bit, our political tribes and, and, and challenge us. Um, and regardless of what happens next week, uh, right before, those of you that are watching online, right before I asked, you know, because this time next week will have been about 24 hours after the polls close. I asked this group if, you know, if they thought we would know who won. And most people in here said, no, we wouldn't. We may be in for a fight. I mean, this, there, there's, you know, it seems like everybody's expecting that that Supreme Court nomination from, that we've been dealing with the last several weeks is going to really matter here um, next week. And it may, it may not. But regardless of what happens um, as gospel people, we have to recognize that, that God is in control of this whole thing. And um, no matter if every state is blue or every state is red or every state is green or whatnot, Jesus is on his throne and all of this is temporary. All of this is temporal. And, um, and, that, and, and most importantly, we're citizens of another place. That I'm not American above all. I'm a citizen of heaven long before... I'm a citizen of any country uh, here, and, and that has to shape my worldview and has to shape everything um, within me. I, was, I just want to say this because Americans, as American Christians, we, we really kind of get wrapped up in these elections and things. I said this four years ago. I wasn't pastor in this church very long when I said this on a Sunday morning. I may say it again this Sunday morning. I just don't have this so much time to talk about it on a Sunday morning. Um, if, if you look at this and just say, I don't know that I can vote on Tuesday, there is no biblical mandate to vote. I think it's in general wise to vote. It's, in, it's wise to contribute and participate. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells you you have to. Voting was a, would have been a foreign concept to the authors of Scripture. And if it was a foreign concept to them, then they couldn't label it as sin or not. And if the Bible doesn't label it as sin or not, then we don't get to either. Um, so I, I do plan on voting um, next Tuesday uh, right here, out here in our lobby, because this is where my neighborhood votes. Um, and, uh, I would encourage you to as well, but if you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm not going to label your, your choosing to or not to, or who you vote for, uh, as some sort of disobedience towards God. I would just encourage you to in Christian wisdom and biblical principles, um, vote your conscience. Cause I think voting is governed first and foremost, uh, by, uh, for Christians by conscience, uh, and so you, you do that, and that's my encouragement to you. Read those other guys. They're far more eloquent than me. So let's transition now. Uh, the final two genres that we're going to speak about uh, ton- tonight, although as I introduce this, there, there are multiple genres in the Scripture that are, that, are, that are minor genres. We'll even see that play out a little bit tonight. And... Um, uh, that we don't really have time to deal with because we just don't have time. This is really survey work, and we're not delving a whole. We're not delving really deep into the subject of genres. But each of these uh, categories, if you want to think about it, like literary categories of scripture, have other categories underneath them and subcategories that that really have some influence and impact in how we interpret. But uh, as we've kind of hit the major ones, we've got, we've got two left. One being the epistles, which we're going to spend um, our first part of tonight talking about. And then the final is New Testament 
prophecy, particularly our New Testament apocalypse, um, uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to deal specifically with the book of Revelation uh, at the end. I had a handout at the back, but it's not something that you need to be able to see. So if you didn't pick one up, but I just have it there for your benefit. So if you think something, I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. And so if you think it would be helpful to you, pick it up on the way uh, out. Because it's helpful to me as, as, um, as I have thought about Revelation. Because that can be a really hard one uh, to think about. We're going to start with New Testament epistles. This is everything from the narrative, meaning not including the narrative. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts is the narrative of the New Testament. The gospel, four gospel accounts and uh, the Acts of the Apostles uh, tell us the history of both Jesus and the New Testament church. And the, the apostles, at least some of the apostles, picked up a practice that was very common uh, within both the um, first century Israelite community and within the uh, Greco-Roman culture that was dominant of the day. And that was the, the practice of letter writing. And these very much are uh, a mixture of those two things, the Hebrew letter uh, and the Greek style um, Greco-Roman influenced letter. But we're, we're very fortunate that um, the Holy Spirit inspired men like Paul and Peter and John and James uh, and others to write, and write these letters either to specific individuals, to churches, to groups of churches, um, because it preserves for us first century thinking about theology uh, and the practice, right? So of faith and of the practice of faith, how we uh, are to be, or how we're to, to, to think about how someone comes to know the Lord and then how they live after that. And uh, so much of the New Testament, or so much of the church uh, and our teachings is, is influenced by these epistles. So while this isn't uh, by any stretch the longest genre in the scripture, it is certainly the most influential one within Christian churches because it directly addresses Christian churches. This isn't narrative that we have to go to and then figure out, okay, why is the narrative there and what's being taught? This is, this is apostles writing to and within the local bodies of believers and giving them instruction. So New Testament epistles are letters written to individuals or congregations addressing specific concerns. And it's important that we recognize that that's what they are. And, and we don't need to just think about them as being um, a, you know, the, like um, Romans, for instance. People sometimes will think about Romans as if it's some systematic theology book. It's not. It's a letter written to a specific group of people by a specific an apostle for a specific purpose, right? Um, or we, we'd think about, First uh, Timothy, just as like this, when I preached through First Timothy, we called it we called it blueprints, right? But but sometimes people will think about that just as as Paul's instructions for how we're supposed to structure a church. So not so much a letter, but um, you know, an, an IKEA booklet that we're going to go from step one to step two to step three, and hopefully at the end we're going to have a have a healthy church. That's not what any of those are. These these are letters uh, written with great thought. 
uh, written with specific styles of organization uh, and addressing very specific concerns. Um, that we always need to think about the letters in the New Testament as occasional writings, not occasional as in they occasionally wrote them, but they were written for specific occasions. That every single letter in the New Testament has a very specific reason that it was written. That, that the, the, the author, most commonly Paul, but not always, the author of, of that letter is thinking about a person, is thinking about a, a church, or is thinking about a group of churches, and is writing to address something. Sometimes it's really easy to know what they're addressing because they tell us, I'm writing to you because of this, right? I'm writing to you because you asked this question. We actually have that. I mean, there are places uh, where, where Paul, particularly in, in Corinth, he's like, I'm writing this because you at, wrote to me and you asked this. And so I'm answering your question. Um, and sometimes it's, I'm writing to you to encourage you because I heard this. I'm writing to you to admonish you because false teachers have arisen or false doctrine has grabbed hold or sin has crept into the church and in one way or another, right? So we, we, we need to find that occasion. We need to recognize that it is an occasional letter written for a specific reason to a specific place by a specific purpose. We've always said in every week that we've been dealing with genre, I've talked so much about context um, particularly as it relates to Old Testament and New Testament narrative, that context matters. I think in the, in the basic hermeneutics, the basic biblical principles, my, my one of those that I gave you was that context is king, right? That the, what's happening in the immediate context and in the surrounding context, um, kind of starting small and then moving out both forward and backwards is really how we get to meaning. That is no more important anywhere than it is right here that this, this local letter, and we have, to, we have to vision it, we have to envision it as this local letter being written to this specific group of people in this specific time for a specific purpose. Because when we, when we see it through that lens, we get right meaning. When we fail to see it through that lens, when we divorce it from its context in that occasion, that author, that recipient, that church, that person, whoever it is, um, we, we start to read it in a wrong way. And we don't want to do that. We want to read it the right way. And so we need to see it for, for what it is. As we think about the epistles of the New Testament, it's helpful, I think, to have some basic categories. Uh, and, and, as I, and different authors, different people who write about New Testament uh, interpretation will place these in uh, varying uh, subgenres or subcategories. I just want to give you three uh, and it, they're primarily related to what that, that previous statement was. It's either who wrote it or who they were writing to, all right? So I think the first, and really this follows the division that the New Testament um, compilers give it to us, that the early church thought about these letters, that they put them in specific order, and we should think about them in this specific, these specific orders too. So the first section is, is Paul's letters to the churches. Um, and this would be everything from Romans through 2 Thessalonians. And uh, so Paul wrote the majority of the letters in the New Testament to the churches. And um, they're, if you've ever wondered about how they're arranged, they're arranged from longest to shortest. 
Um, and so it's not that Romans is more important than Second Thessalonians. It's just a whole lot longer than Second Thessalonians and that the early church compiled them uh, in, uh, in, in length. But all of those were written by Paul. In just about every case, Paul clearly identifies himself. I think maybe in every case, Paul clearly identifies himself as the author. Paul was either writing it with his own hand in some places, and he even draws the attention. Uh, See how big I'm writing this with my own hand. Uh, Most often, Paul used a scribe. Someone else uh, wrote for him. Uh, But nonetheless, these are letters for Paul. We could further divide that to like prison epistles and non-prison epistles or second, third missionary journey letters and fourth missionary journey letters. But um, that may be getting a little too deep uh, because Paul does seem to progress a little bit as time goes on in in certain things and thinks about things a little more, a little differently. Uh, But nonetheless, when when we're approaching anything from Romans to second Thessalonians, we're approaching something that Paul wrote to the church. And it's going to follow a very, a very similar pattern. And we'll talk about that pattern in just a moment. Um, the second group is Paul's letters to individuals. This is First and Second Timothy, uh, Titus, and Philemon. Uh, within that, uh, Philemon really stands out as um, highly unique. Uh, it's the only letter in Scripture that's, that's really written to this one guy addressing this really one subject. Um, so Philemon, um, reads different than, than anything else. The other three are pastoral in nature that Paul's writing to the next generation of church leaders, guys that he brought up in the faith, Timothy and Titus, where he has sent them to, uh, Ephesus and Crete and is, is giving them some very clear instructions about the church and about how the, the church should be established, how they're, because th- these guys are not necessarily to be thought of as pastors in these places, but are representatives of the apostle in those places, and they're still doing the work of Paul while he's imprisoned uh, or away. And so he, um, he writes to them giving uh, specific instructions. So we, we read First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus different than we do Ephesians or Romans or First Corinthians, because they are different. Uh, they're written to, one's written to a church, a group of people intended to be read out loud and, and absorbed by everything, everyone. These others are, are very specific and intentional uh, to individuals, but then both contain teachings that we, uh, the, the broader church, still read and apply and listen to uh, and think about, but we would, we would approach them a little differently. And then there's, uh, what comes next, right? What comes after, um, Titus and Philemon, um, is, is also then organized in, in length. Uh, but it's, it's the letters from other people. Now, the only one of those that we don't know who wrote it is the book of Hebrews. Some people think Paul wrote it. Some people think somebody else wrote it. Then it'd be great to know. Um, but, but the author of Hebrews doesn't identify himself. All we know from Hebrews is this was definitely somebody that knew the old Testament. I think we saw that on Sunday morning, um, as we were looking at, uh, Abram and Melchizedek, right? And then we went to, went to Hebrews. And so this is, this is someone, whoever this was that wrote it, uh, was someone that was obvious, had a Jewish background, obvious was an Israelite writing to Hebrew people, um, and, and making these broad connections for them of these Old Testament practices versus the fulfillment that they find uh, in Jesus. Uh, and then we get uh, other letters from James, the brother of Jesus, Jude, um, and John the, John the Apostle. And each of them is approached somewhat uniquely as, as um, 
uh, as, as they wrote and who they were, were writing to. Uh, but that's a great first question to ask, really, as, as if you're going to study one of the uh, epistles, one of these letters, is to say, okay, which category does this fit in? Is this Paul writing to a church? Is this Paul writing to an individual? Is this someone else writing to a church? Uh, because that's really going to help us, help you, uh, as you, as you think about it. Now, most of the epistles have six parts, and this was very first century tradition that a letter contained six parts. Um, not every letter in the New Testament contains all six of these parts, uh, but most of them do. Some in uh, some combine two of the parts, so some it's a little less formal than others. Um, by the way, some people would some people have that as the division instead of dividing them. Paul wrote this, others wrote this, or who they were writing to. They divide it by the formally composed letters versus the informally composed letters, thinking about one side as being an epistle and the other side as being a letter. Um, I don't necessarily know how helpful that is. But as you approach an epistle, you'll, you'll really usually see these six parts. You'll see the author, right? The person will tell you. Uh, for instance, I happen to be in First Timothy here. And 1 Timothy begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ, by command of our God, Savior, uh, and of Christ, our hope, to, right? So who, I'm, who he is, number one, then who he's writing to, to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the first two verses of 1 Timothy have the first two parts. It has the author, and then it has the, the recipient. Now, our letters don't begin with the author. Our letters, you know, a modern American letter which is now called an email, um, says, dear so-and-so, right? There's began with who was writing it, and then the dear so-and-so. Sometimes there's some flowery language that's there, but nonetheless. Uh, and then there's a formal greeting. Um, and sometimes the greetings for Paul were short. Sometimes they were long, particularly in the letters to the churches. The greetings will often be longer. Sometimes the greeting will be... Um, merged with the uh, fourth part, which was either a prayer uh, for the people or for the person or a thanksgiving, right? So um, uh, most common of the thanksgivings was Paul writing to the Philippians where he said, I, I thank my God in every remembrance of, of you. Uh, so you, the author identifies himself. He identifies who, he, who he's writing to. He greets them, and then he either prays for them or gives some kind of thanksgiving for them. This could be all completely done just within the first three or four verses, or it could take the entire first chapter. Depends on what book of the Bible, uh, which of the epistles you're reading uh, from the New Testament. Then you get to the main section, the body, all right? And the body is where we're going to spend most of our time because that uh, author and recipient and greeting and prayer of thanksgiving may teach us some things. There may be, particularly if it's a little bit longer, there may be some doctrinally significant things. There may be even some hints uh, to what's going to be dealt with later uh, in the book. Oftentimes Paul will do that as he offers a prayer, a brief prayer at the beginning of his letter. Uh, he'll introduce some themes that'll become, that will that'll come back to later. We saw that in Ephesians, that there were some, some themes that were introduced in the beginning uh, section of Ephesians that were regularly repeated uh, later. Uh, but really, the, the primary text that you're going to deal with uh, as you're studying the epistles is, is the body. And we're going to get back to the body here in a minute. And then the final thing uh, is either it either closes with another prayer 
uh, or a farewell or both. And so there, there's a final uh, prayer for the, my, my prayer for you is, Paul will often end, sometimes it's a greeting. Uh, so sometimes it'll be, hey, say hello to, right, these people. Uh, and sometimes it's a combination of both. But it's helpful for you when you sit down and study uh, one of these books that you keep those six uh, traditional elements of a first century letter in mind because it's going to help you do some really quick, all right, here's the author, here's the recipient, this section, these one verse, this one verse, or these six or eight or ten verses is the greeting. Okay, this is the prayer. All right, now we're in the letter. And we get through the body and we're cooking. Now the letter stopped because he's praying for him again or he's greeting people again or he's giving thanksgiving again, right? So you, you kind of separate that out and you, you pick those apart and those, all those, those first several pieces and that last piece help you kind of see that middle section, which is the meat. And the meat's where you're going to spend the majority of your time studying. So when you set out to study an epistle, whether you're studying one of Paul's epistles to the churches or one of his pastoral epistles to an individual, or you're studying John or Hebrews or one of John's letters or Hebrews or James or Jude, you're sitting down to study these epistles. How, how, do, you, how do you approach it? As I said, um, context is king. Context is king everywhere in the Bible, but that is nowhere more true than it is right here. So much so that there's probably a little bit of work that you need to do even before, outside of the text, even before you get there. And you say, wait, isn't the text enough? Yes, the text is enough if you happen to live in first century Ephesus and knew everything that was going on in first century Ephesus and was there when they received the letter from Paul from imprisonment in Rome that we now call Ephesians. The text would have been enough. But because we're not living in first century Ephesus and we don't know everything that's going on there, uh, we need to, though, put ourselves as best as we can. We'll never do it fully. But we need as best we can to put ourselves in the mindset of one of these people. Because while the Bible is always true across all times, the original meaning is still the meaning. And the best work we can do in getting to the original meaning of an epistle is to put ourselves as best we can in the place of the people who are receiving it. And so before I sit down and study one of the New Testament epistles, I do a little bit of background work first. Um, and this is just some basic context study. If you have a basic study Bible, it's probably going to give you everything that you need to know. All right. Um, and when I say a basic study Bible, for instance, this is my preaching Bible. This is not my study Bible. Um, but this is, this is the Bible I preach. I've preached from this Bible for years. And it gives this little paragraph right here that tells me about Paul writing, when he wrote it, who he was writing it to. Um, that's helpful, but maybe not quite as much as what I'm talking about. Now, if all you've got is that, it's better than nothing, okay? It's better than nothing to know that, that Paul is an apostle and he's writing to Timothy and Timothy's in Ephesus and you may know a little bit about Ephesus from having read Ephesians or something. So, you, okay, I can put that together. And Paul's writing here between these dates and it's during this missionary journey. That may help you. But if you have a study Bible, it may give you two or three or four pages of some of this. And 
you may be tempted to just say, well, I just want to read the Bible. And I want you to read the Bible. Believe me, that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to get lost in all this extra stuff. But if you'll spend half an hour, 15 minutes, whatever, the, you know, give a little bit of attention to uh, what was happening in the city. Um, what, what was that city like? What was the primary composition? I mean, think about it. Is this church primarily, if it's, if it's one of Paul's letters to the churches, for instance, is this church primarily made up of Gentiles or Jews? Or is it a mixture of both? Because that matters. It matters a lot to how they, they write the text. Um, what was the pagan worship like? Paul so often gives these uh, instructions that, that deal with the 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 dominant religion of the day. Well, if you don't know what the dominant religion was in some of these places, then you're going to get to that and not know what the meaning is. And you know what our tendency is when we don't know what meaning is in Scripture? We just make something up. And making something up is a little dangerous, right? And so, um, but if you, if you know, oh, wait, they, in this city, this was the primary you know, Roman temple. And in this place, this, the, you know, this is the influence or, or even, um, you know, is it important in Hampton Roads? Let me just think about our own context for a moment. Is it important in Hampton Roads to know that the largest uh, employer in our area by far is the U.S. government? Do you think that's important to our area? That if someone were thinking about um, Hampton Roads a long time from now, that an important piece of information would be to know how many military or government contract employees worked in our area. I think that would be a really important thing for people to know. And if they didn't know that, maybe they wouldn't understand why we talk the way we do, think the way we do, operate the way we do. Well, it's the same way then, right? And we're 2,000 years removed from these things. So do a little basic context study. It'll go a really long way. I'm not telling you buy a big book that's going to tell you all. I mean, look, a, a, a study Bible, I've recommended some in here. Like the ESV study Bible is a great study Bible. It's the one that I use. It, it's got three or four pages that deal with context, and that's it, and it's really helpful. Um, a Bible dictionary, if you just want to invest in like a good Bible dictionary, there's good that you could look up, and it'll give you that, that context. While you can, you can just start out reading most of the rest of, of the books of the Bible um, and, and be successful as, as you think through the different genres, the epistles is the one that maybe a little bit of groundwork is going to be the most helpful because context matters so much. The second thing you want to do, and I don't encourage this with every other genre of the scripture, but I do think it's important with the epistles is when you sit down, and again, we're doing this uh, under the assumption that you're going to study one book of the Bible at a time, all right? And you say, okay, I'm going to study. I still have it open. I'll just use an example. I'm going to study 1 Timothy, all right? And so I get my study Bible out, and I read about Paul's imprisonment, and I read about Timothy and his ministry with Paul and how he traveled with Paul and about how Paul's now sent him to Ephesus and what's going on in Ephesus uh, from the time that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians now here and, and how it's grown and, and what problems may be seeping in and what the false teachings is. Okay, I've got that in my mind. Now I'm, I'm going to read 1 Timothy. On the first day that you sit down to study it, do you know what you need to do? You need to read the whole book. It's the only genre of the Bible that that's really what you need to do. Is you need to read the whole thing. Now, if you're going to sit down and do some of those that are early in the New Testament, like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you're going to need some time. You're going to need half an hour, you're 45 minutes, 60 minutes, something like that. The, lay, the, you know, the, the shorter ones, 
And maybe just start with a shorter one so you don't become discouraged. You work your way up to it. But read the whole thing and identify those six sections. And you'll say, all right, here's the author, here's the recipient, here's the greeting, here's the prayer. All right, now here's the body. And while I, um, I don't write in this Bible, which is why I preach out of it, my writing would be distracting to me. I do write in a Bible. It stays on my desk in my office. And I write in that Bible. And I write a lot in that Bible. And what I would do is I was reading, I would go, okay, I would just label those things. And then I would say, okay, I would kind of bracket it probably. Like, here's the body. Here's where the body starts. A couple of chapters later, okay, here's where the body ends. And then here's going to be the final, you know, uh, farewell and prayer uh, that, that Paul's going to offer. So then I know, okay, this, this other stuff's important, but this other stuff's helping me to know what I'm going to experience when I get into the body here. So the first thing you do is read the whole, or the second thing you do, after you get a little bit of understanding of context, you read the whole thing, identifying. And then as you read the whole thing, once you get down to the body, so okay, here's the body, then you're going to look for some other things. This is still on your first reading, right? You're not only going to look for those six sections, but within the body, you're going to look for markers that kind of divide the body of the epistle into major sections. Um, when I do this for sermon work, those major sections usually become uh, somewhat different, uh, somewhat different sermon series. All right. So when I preached through First um, Peter, for instance, which is the first book of the Bible that I preached through here, it was in three sections. There was the Gospel of Living Hope, because the first section of Peter is describing the gospel to us. Uh, Then it was um, lifestyle of living hope because it's describing how the gospel impacts our lifestyle. Then it's people of living hope because it transitions from an individual person to corporate, right? And the the words kind of shift to talking about how an individual Christian lives to how Christians live within community together. And, and so I, I, when I had studied that all those years ago, I'd kind of made those three sections. I was like, oh, look, this is kind of theological, and this is very practical for an individual, and then this is very practical for the church, and I'd made those notes in my Bible. And those, notes, those things eventually become three different within one big sermon series, just like we're doing with Genesis. We've divided it into four parts, right? Um, I do that with the epistles too. And all of that begins with, that, that initial reading. Now that line may move, right? And in, in further study, but you may say, oh, look here, he's, he's talking about something that's very doctrinal and it, and it goes on for half a chapter, a whole chapter, a chapter and a half, you know, it's really doctrinal. Oh, but here, look, he, we, we, we've transitioned now. And this is talking about marriage and families and employees, kind of like we saw in, in Ephesians five, you know, we had this big transition to home, thinking about the house and how we structure the house and husbands and wives and children, right? You would, you would just kind of make some of those notes. You would also want to make notes of, of themes that, that appear over and over again um, in, in the text. So does, does the same idea come up? Does the idea of false teaching come up? And if so, what is it? Like sometimes we can know what the false teaching is just by seeing what the right teaching that Paul's giving or one of the apostles is giving. If we know what the right teaching is, then we may be able to assume what the false teaching is. Um, is there certain encouragements? Is there bad practice? Like if you read First uh, and Second Corinthians, for instance, uh, just all you'll do as you go through is just make notes of they were doing this wrong and they were doing this wrong 
And then they were doing this wrong because that's what he's addressing. He's just addressing bad practice. Like the, the, the church at Corinth, God love them, just couldn't figure out how to do church right. And Paul was writing to, um, to address it. In Galatians, uh, Paul's writing because there were people that had slipped in the church right behind him, had slipped into the church and was trying to make everybody be a Jew. It was like, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've also got to be a good Jew. Boy, and that made Paul really, really mad. And I... Um, it was like, if you've ever gotten an email in all caps, right? That's what Galatians is. It's an epistle in all caps. I mean, he's angry. Um, but you, you would be able to see that every time because he just addresses one thing after another about they're telling you this, but that ain't right. And they're telling you this and that ain't right. And, and look, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure these things out. You just have to read it with a little bit of practice, right? So you'll identify those sections. You'll identify those themes and then kind of create this rough, and it's going to be rough, mine are rough every time I do it, this rough outline of the body. All right, I think Paul's saying this, 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 and this. And you may be really wrong when you end up doing the more detailed study, but it doesn't matter. You're just, you're just trying to get your mind around the whole book because we need to remember every one of these was written um, or was read, excuse me, either by the church or by the individual in one sitting. And while we, while we would study it slowly, I would preach it slowly if, if we were going through an epistle like we just did with Ephesians. Nonetheless, we're, we're going to we're, we're gonna want to first recognize it for what it is. And that's this, this one unit that we would then break down into further parts. As you then turn to do detailed study, you want to study a paragraph at a time, not a chapter at a time, a paragraph at a time. The paragraphs generally are um, original to, to the text, and there are markers within the, the Greek, because uh, all of these are written in Greek, there are markers within the Greek that, that give, that, give that structure and that, that structure of the paragraph. So you really want to think paragraphs, and you want to ask questions like, what's the relationship of this paragraph to the one before it? So there's a relationship to this paragraph to the one after it. And if you've already read through it, you kind of know what's coming. So you don't have to necessarily read ahead. But you think, okay, why is this here? Why is he making this argument in this place? And then every, every time you read a paragraph, I think a really helpful question to ask is, how would I summarize this? If somebody were to ask me what this paragraph is about, how would I summarize it in one sentence? What would I say this is about? Um, and you, maybe you just write that in your Bible. Maybe you write that, maybe you're keeping a notebook or a journal or something, and you would write that, and you'd say, okay, I read you know, 1 Timothy 3 through 7 because it's a paragraph, and I've studied that, and I think this is about, and you, you write that down, and it, and it helps you, right? So some basic hermeneutical rules as you're reading this and you're doing this study. I know I've said this before, but again, it's really important here. It can't mean something now that it didn't mean then. And uh, that's really true here because these have the most definitive set of receivers of any other book of the Bible. I mean, the, the book of uh, Colossians was written to the church at Colossae. I mean, that's, that's who received it. And if it didn't mean it to them, it does not mean it now. All right? And we have to remember that, that we, 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 can, we don't get to add stuff to it. Um, if it's a comparable, when, when circumstances are being discussed, if it's a comparable circumstance, then the same application is required. Meaning that if Paul's writing to, writing about false teaching within the church, 
And the same false teaching is prevalent today. And some of the same false teaching, for instance, the one in Galatians, it was all about legalism. You got to keep the law. You got to keep the law. You got to keep the law. Well, you know what we're still dealing with 2,000 years later? We got to keep the law. We got to keep the law. We got to keep the law. And so when we read somebody saying, you got to keep the law in Galatians, and Paul says, uh, no, you don't. And here's why. The, the, it, it's a one-for-one correlation, right? Where we can make one-for-one correlations is when the situation is not the same. We got to be careful in taking something that has a one-for-one and, not, and, and bringing it into, into something else. But we also need to be careful when the situation has no one-to-one comparison because life is now different. I'm gonna, I want you to hear everything that I say here because if you just hear part of this, you may think that, that, that I'm affirming something that I'm not. We live in, in, in a different day, right? And because we live in a different day, um, the way, the things that Paul wrote about or the things that New Testament authors wrote about may not have a one-to-one correlation anymore. So the fact, for instance, that in, the, in uh, his letters to the Corinthians, Paul addresses women praying and prophesying within the body, but only doing so with their heads covered, had a very specific meaning in that day because of what pagan women were doing in their day. The same has to do with, the, with dress and, and jewelry that Paul addresses because women were, women were showing their autonomy from their husbands in certain places by the way that they dress. And so there are certain things that just don't have this one-to-one correlation anymore. And we can't drag it out of that context and try to make it fit somewhere over here. But what we can do is learn what the principle is. The principle is we're supposed to be different from the world, right? In in those contexts. So we, we take those things that don't have uh, comparable situations and, and apply the principle, not to any and all circumstances, but to principles that are, but to circumstances that are at least similar. So we, we do good exegesis in the context that we're reading to determine if the author is addressing a unique situation that's unique to them, that's, that's no longer unique to us. And, and if it's no longer unique to us, we say, well, what principle is being applied here? And we need to think about that principle as being biblical. But if that circumstance is applicable and it does have a one-to-one correlation, then we say, okay, what he is commanding there is still what would be commanded today. And it, it, it requires good Bible study to, to do that. And look, none of us do it perfect. I am well aware that there are probably some things in the New Testament that I think are still culturally relevant that aren't, and some things that I think aren't culturally relevant that probably are. And I'm going to get to heaven and find out maybe I was wrong in one area and not on another, and my friend was wrong in an area and not in another. But I'm going to be convinced in my heart as I do good Bible study about what these things say. Last about epistles. When we get to theology in the epistles, we need to ask this. Why is this theological statement here? Theology is often used by the author to build an understanding of new life in Christ. So for instance, the first eight chapters of Romans. It's the longest section of theology that we have. And it's building this principle of new life in Christ. Right? But if you read all of Romans, you get that understanding and you go back to chapter one and you begin to study it and you begin to see, oh, this is what he's leaning to, right? 
But sometimes theology is used by the authors of the epistles to make a, to prove a practical point, right? So the, the point is practical. He's speaking into, so we considered this from Ephesians, right? When he talks about uh, husbands and wives, and I was preaching about husbands and wives, but Paul uses a theological point in um, Christ dying for the church and the church being submissive to Christ, right? To describe the relationship of husbands and wives. So sometimes the theological point is the theological point. And sometimes the theological point is actually an example of a practical point. And, you know, in, in Corinthians, Paul says, um, don't, don't sue each other. Like, and he talks about it like it's just this crazy wild idea that we would drag fellow Christians into court. And then he, he appeals to a theological point. He says, because don't you know that one day you're going to judge the nations and the angels, <laughs> right? The theological point is that in future times, Christians will sit in judgment. But he's using that to show the ridiculous idea that we would then submit ourselves to the world system for, de for deciding conflicts within the body, right? So lots of meat in the epistles. Um, read it all, outline it, then go back and read it slowly, correcting your outline kind of as you go, thinking really. Um, and you may need to spend two, three, four days on one paragraph because there's a lot here asking good contextual questions. Um, how, how, did these, how did these people who heard this first and it was intended to, how did they read it influences how I should read it? I've only left myself 10 minutes. I'm going to talk about Revelation, which I'm glad I only left myself 10 minutes. <laughs> as you read Revelation, I really think you ought to approach it three ways. I think you ought to approach it as an epistle, because it is. I think you ought to approach it as prophecy, because it is. And I think you ought to approach it as apocalyptic literature, because it is. It's all three of those things. It is by far the most confounding of the 66 books of the Bible. If you think you've got the solution to figuring it all out, I can promise you you're wrong, okay? At least in part. Because it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to people that deal with it all the time, all right? But I do think there are some ways that we can approach it. Thinking genre, there's some ways that we can approach it that will make it not as mysterious to us. The first is just think about it as an epistle. The first, uh, really chapters two and three, for chapter one is this big introduction. Chapters two and three are these seven letters to the seven churches. Now that first off tells us something. There's seven churches, there's seven seals, there's seven judgments. There's actually seven parts of Revelation. So because there's seven of all of these things, automatically you know, antennas go up and went, ah, that's important because it is. Um, but ultimately these are seven letters that read different than all the other epistles because it's very metaphorical. It's using a lot of allegorical language um, to talk about Christ um, and to talk about Christ and his relationship with these uh, seven churches. But we read those as epistles because that's what they are. And then we read the rest of the book uh, against the background of the churches, if at all possible. So what did we learn from these seven churches? And what we learned from those seven churches and the patterns that we begin to see and of the New Testament authors 
of the ones who write in patterns, John is the foremost. John writes in this very cyclical pattern. He but writes his gospel that way. He writes First John that way. He writes Revelation that way. That we're, we're in this, I used that term last week, spiral staircase, coming back to the same idea. It's very Hebrew way of, of thinking about particularly uh, future events. And so we want to we want to read but we want to read the whole thing in as an epistle if we can right so what what did we learn about those churches and then how do we apply that to what we're reading in the rest of the book what I have in the back is actually this chart right here um, and don't worry this isn't like John Hagee some of you may want me to do like a John Hagee future chart you know that's not what this is and that's not how I would do it. Um, this is a chart. I didn't create this. Another guy did, but I've, I've found this to be very helpful. And it actually takes the seven cycles of Revelation. And um, the first one being the seven churches. And then the six cycles that follow that each have seven parts, right? And it's amazing how these things relate to one another and what we learn from one to the next. And so pick one of these up if you didn't. And they were back there by the sign. Pick one of these up. Stick it in the back of your Bible. At some point, you're going to read Revelation and maybe you pull this out and you're like, oh, I can kind of see how both these things progress sideways, but also progress up and down. Because remember, it's a spiral staircase, right? So when you're in one part of the staircase and you look down and you look up, you're seeing very similar things, right? And we move to the next step and you look down and you look up, oftentimes you're seeing very similar things. Well, that's on purpose, right? We also read it like it's prophecy. So it is, it is epistle, but it is also prophecy. And in, in that it's prophecy, the question that we have to ask is, what is this prophetic about? And the church has disagreed on that. We certainly consider this a third tier doctrine here. We do not have a preferred understanding of the prophecy contained within Revelation. I do think you do need to be convinced in your own heart. So at some point, do the study, read some good books and things that people have written on the subject, become convinced in your own heart, but hold that conviction really, really loosely, recognizing that the person sitting next to you may have a different one. Four primary ways the church has thought about this as far as the prophecy of Revelation is uh, related. First, uh, what was known as preterist, meaning that all of it, all of the prophecy of Revelation took place during the lives of those seven churches, that it's all first century that it's all dealing with Rome, that it's all talking about the persecution of uh, the first century church. The second is known as the historicist view. Uh, this is that the, the prophecy of Revelation is dealing uh, with the whole history of the church age. So for however long that lasts, it's giving us this cyclical view of the rise of sin and the persecution of the church and the faithfulness of God's people. All right? The third is the futurist view. This was very much popularized in Western Christianity in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, it was spread through study Bibles and um, uh, popular preaching, kind of really kind of culminating in the late 90s in the Left Behind books, all right? Um, and this is that all of Revelation is talking about future stuff. So pretty much everything after chapter 3 um, you know, when you start in chapter four and on, that it's all talking about future stuff uh, that's going to happen um, later, all right? And then the last is an idealistic view that it's really not describing any kind of history at all, but it's all symbolic of this struggle of good and evil. 
Um, if you want to know how I read it, all right, I, I read it, through, and I think actually there's something we can learn from all four of those. I think all four of those make decent points. They all four have, have um, they all four have passages in Revelation that you're like, oh, I can see that, and they all have some that they have to stretch it a little bit, okay? And so I really think borrowing from a little bit, borrowing from, from several is, is kind of helpful. And I read Revelation um, in, uh, from a historic lens the same way that I read um, the prophets of the Old Testament and prophecy of Jesus in now, not yet. All right. So I think that there was, there is, I'm convinced of this, there is some very specific first century um, illustration there. There's some very clear things that's being said that that directly aligns with the persecution of the first century church as John is writing to them. But I also think there's a bigger picture. And as I read it, I tend to be um, historical in that, in that, in that what John is showing us is this constant pattern of rise of persecution, rise of evil, um, and not necessarily predicting, you know, the rise of Hitler or the rise of Stalin or the rise of Mussolini or the rise of, you know, Napoleon. Some people do. I don't. I just see it as this constant coming back to evil's going to rise, the church is going to be faithful and persecuted, the gospel's going to spread. E- evil's going to rise, the church, right? And you see that. You may, you may disagree with me in that perfectly fine. So I, I read it as um, having first century um, uh, meaning with, with future historic correlations um, that could be happening either later or uh, within the history of the church. But finally, Revelation is also apocalyptic writing. Modern meaning first century writing, apocalyptic literature was prevalent. It was probably the most popular writing in, uh, in Hebrew circles in the, the um, intertestamental period time through the first century was apocalypse. They loved some apocalyptic writing. All this symbolism, they all had dragons in them, just like Revelation does. Um, they all have, and no, I don't think there's a literal dragon that's going to come at the end of time. I, if you do, that's all right, but I don't think, that, I don't think that's what that's telling us. Um, I, I think, but it uses, it uses all of this symbolism. There's more references to the Old Testament, by the way, in Revelation than there are in the rest of the New Testament combined. Um, and, and it's all symbolic. And that's what first century Jewish apocalyptic literature was. It was this high literary um, pictures intended to give hope most talking about the end of the world, designed to give persecuted people hope because they were oppressed. For hundreds of years, the Israelites were oppressed. They were oppressed by their captors during the exile. They were oppressed by the Greeks who conquered the Persians. They were oppressed by the Romans who conquered the Greeks. These were an oppressed people. And they wrote about their oppression in apocalyptic literature. And John stays in that genre, but instead of writing about the oppression of the Jewish people, he writes about the oppression of the Christian people. And that there is hope that we can persevere, that God will ultimately overcome evil. And so I think that's how we ought to read it. 
we ought to read it recognizing that this isn't describing helicopters. I, I don't, I just, sorry. I, I don't think that John looked into the future and saw helicopters and the best he could do was these flying bugs with, you know, armor and wings and the people they stung died. I just don't think that's what it is. I, I, I do think though that the message is hope. The message is perseverance. The message ultimately is that God conquers evil. And that one day, when you get to that seventh sequence, that one day, all of this is done away with. And, and God wins and brings about the end of his redemptive story. And we, along with him, believers uh, win as well and reign with him. So uh, maybe this will be helpful for you uh, as you read it. I would encourage you, uh, read good people on that, struggle with it. You know, I do. I, I don't have a fully formed understanding of eschatology, a fully formed understanding of revelation. I've never preached all the way through that book. I will one day. Um, and uh, it, I imagine during that, I will, uh, I'll, I'll become even more fully formed than, than I am now. But progress in that, recognizing that it's difficult. And so because it's difficult, you, you need to you need to hold it pretty loosely. All right, we have come upon 7.30. That went fast. Um, we've come upon 7.30. Maybe it didn't for you. It did for me. Um, I want to pray for us before we end. Father, I pray for our nation. As we talked about for the first 10 minutes or so, we, we face an election. I pray for our nation uh, as we come to this time to decide uh, who will lead us both in uh, the People's House uh, but, uh, and the White House and the Senate uh, in our own local elections, school boards, and mayors. Uh, we recognize that all of those things are important, but you're in control of them, that you appoint boundaries and timings of boundaries, that you appoint rulers, uh, as, uh, as Christ said um, to Herod. You've got, the only power you have is the power that God gave you, and we recognize that. Uh, I pray, God, that we will think clearly as Christians in a biblical way, as we head to the polls and that we will accept whatever result comes uh, with humility and thanksgiving God, because you know what is best for us and you are bringing out the, the end that will most glorify you. And whatever that means for our nation, God, we recognize as citizens of heaven that we pray come Lord Jesus and uh, we, we desire for your glory. We pray for our president, uh, for President Trump now. Would he lead us in wisdom and if he remains our president, we will continue to pray for him. And if Joe Biden becomes our president or someone else, uh, we will commit to praying for them as well. Uh, Father, help us to continue to be good students of your word as we read and study, particularly as we've talked about uh, the New Testament these last two weeks, the, the story of Christ and the church, and then these writings that uh, give us instruction about how we come to faith, about how we live out our faith, and then as we get to Revelation about how we have a future hope of good in God overcoming evil in this world, uh, would we cling to that hope, not looking to saviors in the world to defend us, uh, but looking to you, our God, uh, who is our everlasting living hope. We pray in Christ's name, amen.